morning and welcome to Rising. We have a fantastic post-election show planned for you today. And let's get right to it. It was the red wave that wasn't, in my view. The polls are closed after a long night of vote tallying. Control of Congress still hanging in the balance as both parties have yet to firmly wrest control of either chamber. There are hotly contested Senate races that are not uh, completely wrapped up in Arizona and Nevada. Georgia remains too close to call, could be headed to a runoff. Georgia officials saying it's actually safe to say that there will be a runoff after all. Republicans currently hold 49 seats to Democrats 48, and at this point it's anyone's game, although things are looking much better for Democrats uh, than the kind of pundits had it over the last couple weeks. Um, Democrats in battleground districts across the country have managed to hold on to many seats, outperforming initial expectations. So despite that, Republicans still, however, expected to pick up the seats they need to recapture the House in the coming days, though not at all by the margins uh, that some had expected. So what are the night's biggest wins? In Pennsylvania, Democrats swept the state's Senate and gubernatorial races, delivering wins to Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman and State Attorney General Josh Shapiro. Meanwhile, down south, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp, Kemp will retain his seat after defeating Democratic hopeful Stacey Abrams, as will Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who sent his Democratic challenger Charlie Crist packing after winning almost 60 percent of the vote. In Ohio Senate race, J.D. Vance, uh, the Republican, beat Congressman Tim Ryan in one of the only victories for a true kind of Trump Republican. Trump-backed candidates who lost their races include Dr. Oz in Pennsylvania and Doug Mastriano, and then also Don Bolduc in New Hampshire. Meanwhile, the fate of MAGA warrior Carrie Lake, who's the Arizona gubernatorial candidate, and then Herschel Walker uh, uh, is the Georgia Senate candidate, Blake Masters the Arizona Senate candidate, those are undecided still. Here's what the former president himself had to say about his influence before the polls closed yesterday. The results for Republicans, um, how much of that will be because of Donald Trump? Well, I think if they win, I should get all the credit. And if they lose, I should not be blamed at all, okay? But it'll probably be just the opposite. Uh, when they win, I think they're going to do very well. I'll probably be given very little credit, even though in many cases I told people to run. And they ran, and they turned out to be very good candidates. They did not turn out to be very good <laughs> candidates. Let's just call it what it is. Um, so, so the polling so far is basically fine, um, although it, is, it was looking a little, maybe a little off in Arizona. Um, Carrie Lake right now is, uh, is I think, very much underperforming. How do you the mean polls the polling were. is basically fine? Well, the po not the punditry, but the polling had this as a pretty tight, mm. 50, you know, a, a 50 Four percent chance of Republicans winning the Senate, with a maybe a 50-50 or a 49-51 outcome. That is where we're headed right now. Um, you know, some some people got over their skis and said, "Oh, Republicans are going to win. They're going to win New Hampshire too. They're going to win New York governor." A race. lot of people did. So, to what That's do you attribute happening. that kind of uh, bullish opinion from the right or from the left as well yeah. about the right? Yeah, we're, I mean, there's so much to get into, but um, I, I think. And I said this a couple of weeks ago when the when the fortunes of the Republicans didn't seem as good. Um, the candidate quality matters. And you know, Trump's bragging there about having picked people like Dr. Oz, who has lost. Um, Blake Masters, who looks likely to lose in Arizona. Herschel Walker, maybe it'll go to a runoff, but he's underperforming what uh, Brian Kemp, the gubernatorial candidate, who Trump is no fan of because of the election stuff. He, Kemp won easily. So, so it's, where, uh, where it's, it's not a good showing for, frankly, it's a bad showing for Trump himself. Where do you put Adam Laxalt hanging on? 
right. where do you put J.D. Vance? And what do you do about DeSantis being someone who, at one point, Trump used to brag a lot about putting on the map? J.D. Vance uh, is the Trumpiest candidate to have a good night, for sure. Although, remember that Republicans spent $30 million in that race because Tim Ryan ended up being pretty competitive in the polling. That was money that could have been spent um, in Pennsylvania. It could have been spent in Georgia. It could have been spent in Arizona. So even though, yeah, Ohio is a redder state, it was safer for a, for a Trump Republican than in some of these other places, I don't know that that ends up being... It's a, it's a technical win, so that's all that counts, but there's a, there's a larger issue. In Nevada, so my perception of Laxalt, and I'm less familiar with this candidate than the others we've been discussing, mm. um, is that he has not run in the general election as full. I mean, he is, I think he's quite a, certainly conservative, certainly Trump-supporting. Don't get me wrong. He is by no means a never-Trump person. My understanding is he has not run uh, as a hardcore let's relitigate 2020 in the same way that uh, Carrie Lake, Blake Masters, and others have. You, you uh, have some counter. Yeah. I mean, I'm, Cortez Mastro, his opponent, has certainly leaned into the things he has said in the past about the election. Yeah, uh, and he was on, I believe, uh, Trump's um, litigation yeah. team that was litigating these cases unsuccessfully in the wake of the election. He he did. He was, he was not an incidental player. He wasn't someone who made a casual comment about the big lie in the middle of all of this. And certainly, you know, Catherine Cortez Mastro has been making quite a bit of it in terms of her messaging, and I wonder how much of an effect yeah. that had in the state as well. But Blake Masters ran an ad saying, mm -hmm. I believe Donald Trump won the 2020 election. Mm -hmm. This is the Arizona Senate candidate. That hurts you. Arizona's a, it's yeah. a divided state. Nevada's a divided state. Well, what about I don't think Laxalt did that. Because there has been a lot of commentary about how Democrats were misreading the room with respect to not focusing on inflation and not focusing on crime. I went back through yesterday and listened to a lot of the stump speeches and uh, commentary and debates or whatever kind of debate-like event that these people had. And Republicans were hitting those messaging, that messaging strong. It does not seem to have panned out. What do you make of the rhetoric that says, People rank um, the economy, crime, et cetera. Yeah. Democrats are soft in those issues. Did Republicans fail to deliver substantively on a pitch about what they were affirmatively, affirmatively going to do about those issues? And did that ultimately hurt them? I think I agree with you in part and maybe partly disagree. Lee Zeldin, the New York gubernatorial candidate, Republican candidate, so he lost. He did pretty well. He, he, he historically the best showing for a Republican in a very long time explicitly running on the crime issue. So I, I don't know that that shows that Republicans were wrong to lean into that or they didn't offer anything. However, it is clear that despite all the polling we have, despite all the, the, the focus groups, everything we have suggesting that voters are fed up with the economic situation and do not trust and do not appreciate what the Biden administration's plan for it is, they did not think Republicans had anything to do about it. They, they did not turn to Republicans to fix it, perhaps because, and I know you've, you've asked a couple of Republican guests we've had on the show, well, what are you actually going to do? Yeah. They haven't had satisfying answers. I can admit that. Yeah. Um, and and I, that certainly that certainly could have hurt. And uh, and look, abortion did clearly hurt in some ways. Uh, yeah. We, we, we're having the results we expected four months ago, uh, basically, that, that despite all the unpopularity of the Biden administration or them not really connecting the bad situation, um, I, voters do not want, I think, the hardest right 
social conservative version that uh, Republicans have served up. They said no to that. Dra drag shows didn't make the people turn out in the way that they <laughs> expected. What a surprise that Americans <laughs> top. I mean, th you're, you're right, though, that there is a kind of um, I, leaning so far into the culture war, a, an issue that doesn't have a lot of uh, po policy ramifications. Yeah, that's also so, not the economy. It does, it's also it not inflation. It's also not yeah. talking about the economy. I, I don't think yeah. you're wrong about that. Well, Democrats faced flack in recent weeks for the party's focus on Roe v. Wade, with critics noting that abortion messaging came at the almost total expense of messaging on the economy. So how did the issue perform at the ballot yesterday? Voters in Michigan, California, and Vermont all voted to approve constitutional amendments protecting the right to abortion. Meanwhile, an anti-abortion measure in Kentucky continues to falter, with current tallies showing 56% of voters disapprove of the referendum. Nationwide exit polling conducted by NBC News shows that abortion ranked just behind inflation when it came to issues driving voters to the polls, and they're followed by crime, guns, and immigration. So, yeah, it. Uh, I think it... It'd be hard to say it didn't have an effect. Um, uh, clearly it did. Um, look, I, I think the message to Republicans is pretty clear. It, in fact, it was clear even before this. It's <laughs> like I'm seeing all these Republicans saying, yeah. man, Trump is just an albatross around our neck. We have to be rid of him. Was that not clear when he, through his buffoonery, caused Republicans to lose the Georgia runoffs? Was that not clear when he himself was defeated in a presidential election? He has won one election against Hillary Clinton a very historically disliked um, Democratic candidate who ran a disastrous, who, who just like forgot to campaign yeah. in the two states that were most important. Yeah. And he won under those circumstances and has not won and has not delivered any uh, a, a political victories, campaign well, look, victories that's one more victory than Stacey Abrams has had under her belt. <laughs> and, it, and, it's and we're going to get to her later. And we're also going to get to uh, Ron DeSantis, who did have a good night. We're going to talk about that. Yeah, but, um, and, but the, the point about women is an interesting one. I believe uh, Fetterman won 57% of the female vote. Another story that we should get into later today is the value of the youth vote, which I think mm -hmm. is wrapped up in also the concerns about abortion and the lack of potency in some of the conservative messaging that didn't get to core issues. Mm -hmm. Also, there was a lot of uh, hand-wringing. Tim Ryan, who lost, um, was very anti-student debt cancellation. And there are people who are saying that that was a huge mistake mm. and that youth turnout was riding on the wings of promises as yet unfulfilled promises, but promises nonetheless from the Biden administration to do something about the student debt crisis. So a lot of moving parts here. A lot of moving parts. If I was Republicans, I would, I would say, how can we clone... Brian Kemp's and Glenn Youngkin's mm. of the world. These seem to be the Republicans who are acceptable to moderate or swing or independent voters, not the likes of Dr. Oz and Blake Masters, mm. etc. Mm. Well, we will absolutely be discussing more of the election results all show, really. So stay tuned. We'll be back in a minute. We weathered the storms but we stood our ground. We did not back down. We had the conviction to guide us and we had the courage to lead. We made promises. We made promises to the people of Florida and we have delivered on those promises. And so today, after four years, the people have delivered their verdict. Freedom is here to stay.
That was Florida Governor Ron DeSantis delivering a victory speech after his massive win over Democratic challenger and former Republican Governor Charlie Crist last night, helping Republicans deliver a resounding mandate in the Sunshine State. Senator Marco Rubio also squarely defeated his challenger, Democratic Congresswoman Val Demings. DeSantis's decisive victory only stands to ignite further speculation about a 2024 presidential run and potential face-off between the rising GOP star and former president Donald Trump. And while Trump admitted to personally voting for DeSantis in this year's election, it seems the former president is less than pleased about the prospect of having to fight for the Republican nomination in 2024. Ron is a person, I've always had a decent relationship with him, but when I endorsed him, he was, he was gone. He was not going to be able to even be a factor in the race. And as soon as I endorsed him, within moments, he, the race was over. I got him the nomination. He didn't get it. I got it. Because the minute I made that endorsement, he got it. Then he ran, and he wasn't supposed to be able to win. I did two rallies. We had 52,000 people each one, and we ended up, he won. And I thought that he could have been more gracious, but that's up to him. In comments to The Wall Street Journal yesterday, Trump added, quote, If I did run, I will tell you things about him that won't be very flattering. I know more about him than anybody other than perhaps his wife, who is really running his campaign. Oof. Okay, so before we get into the Trump of it all, yeah. and he kind of sucks the energy out of this, this conversation or redirects the conversation to where there is, frankly, quite a lot of energy because Trump knows how to entertain, if nothing else. Um, what do you think happened in, in Florida? Is it that the something about the, um, the base in Florida yielded a more decisive victory for Republicans? Is it the fact that Latino voters maybe care more about inflation than some of these other issues? Do they just run good campaigns in the state? Whatever it is, you have to credit it. It's, it's worked. Ron DeSantis uh, was very successful. Republicans had the, the be, their best aspect of their night. It was not actually a very good night overall. But in Florida, it was a good night. The red wave was, just, I guess, just a hurricane that made landfall <laughs> oh, in Florida no. and then petered out before it got anywhere else, to use a really kind of offensive metaphor. Um, I, I wonder, um, I don't know if you raised this or someone raised this. Uh, it might have been you. Uh, it, uh, how much we're seeing, if we're seeing any migration, you know, mm -hmm. people very fed up with lockdowns mm -hmm. or crime or whatever, or critical race or whatever it was, leaving places like New York, Michigan, et cetera, heading to Texas and Florida. Maybe the Republican base is going to have the problem that I think the Democratic base has to mm -hmm. some extent, that they're disproportionately concentrated in a couple cities. Republicans are going to be disproportionately concentrated in Florida, which is just really becoming a red state. So that could be uh, uh, a factor. But n no question that Ron DeSantis is a star. Uh, um, it, it is a Republican star beloved by the, ba the base and conservative media and clearly has enough um, appeal to, uh, to swing voters or independents or whatever you want to call him to make him a really compelling force. So great night for him. Uh, my, he won Miami-Dade County. Mm -hmm. um, he helped uh, win some, uh, some other down-ballot races. So, so really, really good for DeSantis. And, uh, and I think if there was any doubt in his mind that 20... 24 is going to be his year and he should go for it. I, this should remove all doubt. Yeah, I, I think it's also worth noting this is a little bit of an indictment of the Democrat strategy here. They ran a former Republican uh, in an effort to try to out yeah. Republican Republicans in a red state. It did not work out for Christ. Uh, someone noted that he has now lost, ran and lost as a Republican, an independent and a Democrat. Mm -hmm. And Val Demings was one of these top cop style candidates yeah. a la Kamala Harris, except that she didn't ever even pretend to be a progressive 
uh, prosecutor leaned in on the kind of uh, I I am uh, tougher on crime the Republicans shtick that Joe Biden has been doing since the summer of 2020. Well, I just say since the 1994 crime bill, and it didn't seem to yield results. So I'm curious whether Democrats will make different decisions about what might turn out voters in a state where they already have a real Republican and maybe don't need a Republican light. Yeah, could be. Uh, clearly, it didn't do them any favors. I'm not sure any other Democrat could have. Maybe they could have fared better. I don't know. But you're, you're right to say that strategy didn't. Well, it's work. interesting. It we were Charlie talking. Charlie Crist is not a good candidate. Right. It's just bad. right. Well, we were talking a little bit a while, a while ago about how abortion outperformed Democrats in a lot of these states, and yeah. I still remember yeah. how the pro-choice position, the pro-choice yeah. position, right. and how a, a $15 minimum wage outperformed Democrats and Republicans in the state of Florida in 2020. And, and, and DeSantis, a savvy political operator, doesn't hasn't run on banning abortion. Has I, I think has kept his conversation to well, maybe a cutoff in the in the 14 or 15 weeks uh, period, which like that is a policy I think you can get away with. Mm -hmm. You can't. You clearly can't get away with the ban abortion. It just turns off too yeah. many people in the middle um, that uh, that Republicans are going to need to win. Um, all right, now we should we should let's turn talk, to turn let's to Trump. talk about it. Um, look, we are heading for an epic clash uh, because Trump has given every indication that he's going to announce perhaps soon. Um, I, I think this. This would, uh, for a rational political actor, this would t suck the wind out of their sails a little bit because um, his his the, the the candidates that he helped get the nomination, your Dr. Oz's, um, other Doug Mastriano's, uh, people of that nature, uh, did not do well. Herschel Walker, mm -hmm. um, it's, it's it's L after L after L. Mm -hmm. uh, well, we don't know the, the outcome out. of Georgia, but but Kemp, easy win. Mm -hmm. Herschel Walker in in this this fight for his life. So uh, so it's not a good showing for Trump, but uh, but the, we've known this over and over again, and there's been no way to make Trump exit. Republicans' leadership just keeps hoping he'll just gracefully exit. Well, and in Won't Trump's, do it. In Won't Trump's do defense, it. he also picked DeSantis, yeah. <laughs> as we saw in the leading clip. Yeah. He also chose DeSantis. I mean, what do you I, make of yes, this argument? I, mean, I don't know. It's, it's kind of... So, the idea that, like, DeSantis could not have... Like, DeSantis went from nothing to everyone, like, in, in moments. It's a little... I think that's a little... Well, well, look, I do think there's something to the idea that DeSantis has benefited from not being forced to kind of define himself on the public stage, in part because he did come up as a Trump candidate. Yeah. And although, as we've learned from the Pennsylvania race, debates clearly don't matter, I think some people were surprised how um, less effective he came off in the debate with Chris, despite Chris not being... Mm -hmm. anybody's kind of Obama-style rhetorical star here. And so it is, I think, an, an outstanding question whether or not DeSantis will be able to stand on his own on the national stage the way that Trump has obviously been able to do. Yeah. And, and I also wonder what you think of this argument people have been making that the, the outcomes here, the red wave being averted, as it were, is in part because Donald Trump reared his head campaigning in states like Pennsylvania in a way that might have reminded folks that Dr. Oz was a Trump candidate and that some Republicans are just over the idea of Trumpism. Independents that were breaking for Republicans last month broke for Democrats this month. Do you buy that rationale for what happened uh, with independent voters to cause the red wave to be more I do. trickle? I mean, frankly, I do. Um, look, there's no question that Trump is still very, very popular within the Republican Party, that he is a base of hardcore support. I don't want to like underestimate his strengths by any stretch of the imagination. He, he commands an almost unfathomable, unprecedented amount of loyalty from 
millions of voters. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it, he has a hold over the Republican Party that no former candidate fa failed, un failed to win re-election uh, presidential candidate has ever had mm -hmm. over the party. It, it's truly remarkable. And that gives him a lot of power. But it's a, it's a primary power. It's a within the Republican Party power. He is very unpopular outside that out, outside that segment of, of the of the base he's extremely unpopular obviously with democrats maybe any republican would be but he's not particularly popular with the independent the slivers of voters we're fighting over in these important battleground states it maybe it's not a lot of people but it's it can be decisive we're seeing how yeah. it can be decisive with people like fetterman winning by just just a few points georgia going to a runoff um uh, different arizona candidates could have done better the former uh, doug ducey is the is the was the current governor of arizona more moderate, probably you probably wouldn't classify him as moderate, but he's not Trumpy whatsoever, not an election denier, very popular. He had some interest in running. I think he very well could have won. Mm. We don't know. You know it's, who mm. knows? But uh, would have done better than Blake Masters probably. Didn't even want to get in the race because he had such a feud with Trump over, you know, he did. He would refuse to do the election denial mm. thing. That, that, that was the same case with uh, Sununu could have run in New Hampshire, the popular governor there. We've seen that popular Republican governors who didn't like Kemp, who, like Youngkin, who have not had to take kind of election craziness positions, mm -hmm. can win, can absolutely win. Yeah. And Trump is punishing them for that. So yeah. that's, the, uh, that's the rub, and it's going uh, to be fun to see how this develops. I won't hate watching it. <laughs> I, uh, I won't either. I'll, I'll, <laughs> and we'll enjoy discussing it afterward. More Rising after this. Stay with us. Maricopa County says they expect to have 99% of their ballots counted by Friday. This news comes after approximately 20% of the county's polling sites were experiencing issues with tabulation machines yesterday. County technicians changed the printer settings, which reportedly seemed to have resolved the issue. Um, it usually does. This printer's terrible. You just got to reset gotta plug it. it, out, plug, plug it, it in. back in. Maybe refill the paper tray. <laughs> it's always like missing that. paper. Toner. Toner problem. <laughs> Toner issue. Robbie's in the case. The campaigns for Republican gubernatorial candidate Carrie Lake, U.S. Senate candidate Blake Masters, and the Republican National Committee immediately filed lawsuits to keep polls open until 10 p.m., but a judge denied the request. Maricopa County comp comprises more than half of the state's population. A hearing on the issue was held right before polling places were set to close. According to the court, there was no evidence the glitches stopped voters from casting their ballots. Hmm. Here's gubernatorial candidate Carrie Lake responding to the tabulating issues. Things are looking very good for us. They may be trying to slow a red tsunami, but it's coming. And we are going to take back Arizona. Donald Trump also released a video message to Arizona voters uh, on Truth Social on Tuesday afternoon, uh, alleging that the situation was a, quote, complete voter integrity, all caps, disaster, saying people of Arizona don't get out of line until you cast your vote. They are trying to steal the election with bad machines and delay. Don't let it happen. Yeah. Yeah, he said he sells reports are coming in from Arizona. The voting machines are not properly working. Here we go again. The people will not stand for it. Um, so they did have some issues with the machines. My understanding is that, right, the machines were reading the ballots wrong, which they were then able to fix. Um, obviously, obviously, that's going to raise concerns with, you know, people right. who are concerned given about the, election. Given the environment. Look, the, so the Maricopa County Superior Court judge, 
funnily enough, named Tim Ryan, mm -hmm. rejected arguments that voters were denied to Can't the get right. To Ohio, what are you doing, Tim? <laughs> no, the conspiracy theories were all oh, about, but um, yeah. says that no one was denied their right to cast ballots because of the glitches with the equipment, saying the court does not have any evidence that any voter was precluded from their right to vote. It was a tabulation issue, not a registration of yeah. vote issue. So that's why the extension to 10 p.m. was not granted, but it has delayed the count here and obviously has created an environment for folks to cast doubt on the ultimate results of this election. Yeah, which, you know, it's, it is very unfortunate and, and whoever screwed this up um, should really should be fired because so far it looks to me like the Carrie Lake, uh, out, I mean, we don't know the outcome yet, uh, but she is badly underperforming her, the polling, which had her well ahead. Uh, so, if, so, so if you have, if you end up having something going wrong with the voting machines, in the, in the one race where it really is an outlier from the polling, I mean, that is obviously going to make people have some questions. Yeah, and I gotta time. say, Carrie Lake was one of the ones that I thought, despite the point you've been making, and I think you've been very much validated, um, your point you make about uh, candidate choice and how some of the more Trump-aligned mm -hmm. candidates that have been big lie candidates haven't been faring very well. I thought just from watching Carrie Lake and her poise, her control of the room, obviously she's a newscaster who's a well-known name in the state. Um, she presents very well. She's very good at hitting her talking points on these issues that at least the media has said are real uh, albatrosses for Democrats, immigration, crime, the you know trans kids in sports and drag shows and all of that. She hits her beats in a way that I think actually, frankly, sounds a lot less virulent from my subjective opinion, than a lot of the mm. other Republicans. And when I watched the tee-up, now famously, uh, she Hobbs was not willing to debate Carrie Lake, and she made a lot of that, but they had a candidate event where they each spoke consecutively. Carrie won the room. Now, again, debates don't matter. Nobody watches them, et cetera, et cetera. But I was actually, frankly, mm. very surprised by how close this was. Mm. Um, what, what's your take on this race? Yeah, she is... Um she combines right some of the harder right policy positions and rhetoric that I, I think is is harmful to Republican candidates with an admittedly very impressive uh, television uh, quality mm -hmm. star quality kind of mm -hmm. thing. Uh, I mean, what what Donald Trump has shown and has absolutely been an asset to him is is na familiarity, name recognition, which I, she has in Arizona. She has as a she was a TV presenter in uh, in in news there. Donald Trump also the name recognition and then also the TV and star and enter the entertainment persona and presence we have learned is a massive advantage in politics that many of the same skills that would make you effective at um, at uh, at entertainment at TV at punditry at news commentary delivery appearance yeah. translate beautifully to successful campaigning, uh, to, to politics itself, whatever, you have staff members do that. Right. For, the, for being the figurehead of a political movement, um, it's very, it, it, it's similar skills. So it's not surprising to see, again, Kari Lake definitely has those skills the way Trump did. So I, I, all, I, I'm, Believed the polling that had her doing doing quite well, but uh, obviously yeah, it's, well, it's the, not the, quite landing. The, this look, this this kind of a election mistake, this kind of technical mistake with the machines, is not what Democrats want to be seeing in one of the outstanding 
blue-leaning stage with Mark Kelly um, up about 51% uh, here at the time. Uh, so we'll continue to watch it and see what happens and, decide, and see if this is if, if despite if Trump's warning that Democrats are trying to delay is a projection to get some delayed um, outcomes here that might uh, benefit uh, Republicans down the pike. Mm, we'll see. More rising right after this. Well, Democrats prevailed in Pennsylvania last night. John Fetterman defeated Dr. Oz in the state Senate race, and Democrat Josh Shapiro will be the state's next governor, victorious over challenger Doug Mastriano. Fetterman gave his victory speech earlier this morning. Let's watch some of that. We launched this campaign almost two years ago, and we had our slogan. It's on every one of those signs right now. Every county, every vote. Every county, every vote. And that's exactly what happened. We jammed them up. We held the line. I never expected that we were going to turn these red counties blue, but we did what we needed to do. And we had that conversation across every one of those counties. And tonight, that's why I'll be the next U.S. Senator from Pennsylvania. According to a CBS Pennsylvania exit poll, when asked which one of these issues mattered most when voting, 36% of Pennsylvania voters said abortion, 28% said inflation, 11% said crime, 10% said gun policy, and 8% said immigration. When asked if Dr. Oz has lived in Pennsylvania long enough to represent it effectively, 43% said yes, 56% <laughs> said no. And in response to the question, is Fetterman healthy enough to represent Pennsylvania effectively, 49% said yes, 48% said no. Joining us now to weigh in on these wins is Hill political reporter Julia Manchester. Welcome back, Julia. Great to see you this morning. Great to see you, Robbie. Thank you. All right. So where is your head at? Obviously, we are not seeing the red wave uh, that some anticipated to nearly that extent. And the kind of indicative race there is Fetterman did prevail over Dr. Oz, albeit by a very, very close margin. What are your takeaways from the race? Yeah, so first of all, I'm surprised that we found out Pennsylvania as early as we did. We know that Pennsylvania has a law where they can't start counting those early vote ballots until election day. So a lot of us watching the race, we're expecting to find out on Thursday or maybe even Friday. So the fact that it was called very, very early Wednesday morning was definitely surprising and probably shows how incredibly, um, you know, how uh, Fetterman was able to uh, handedly defeat Oz. Now, obviously, it was relatively close, but Oz has called Fetterman to concede. Fetterman appears to have um, very clearly won. Um, but, you know, those exit polling issues on abortion and the top issues are fascinating. And I think that once again comes down to the Fetterman campaign's argument of campaigning on that issue of abortion, you know, obviously across Pennsylvania, but particularly in Philadelphia's collar counties, those counties that are outside of the city, um, surrounding the city, very much held, held a lot of rallies focusing on the issue of abortion, ran a lot of ads on abortion in those areas, and it really appeared to help boost Fetterman. But I thought it was also notable that 
Fetterman also talked about in his victory speech about the fact that he went to very red counties and red areas of the state. And that's something that his campaign touted as well throughout the cycle, talking about how he drew crowds of over 100 in places like Johnstown, for example. So uh, the Fetterman campaign, very successful this morning, Oz conceding. Um, and I think that's a good sign for Democrats going forward as we wait for other results out of states like Nevada or Georgia. Obviously, those are different um, environments in those states, but it's a good sign for Democrats flipping a seat. Yeah, I think the point you just made about Fetterman being very visible and campaigning all across the state is an important one because I just, I got to come back to this, this poll number here when asked if Oz has lived in Pennsylvania long enough to represent it effectively. Only 43% said yes, 56% said no. Some people might have said Fetterman talking a lot about how Oz wasn't out of town or all of the gaffes about not being able to pronounce the local grocery store and crudite and all of that might have not added up to a lot. But I got to say, these, these Pennsylvania voters watching these Philadelphia sports teams over the last couple of weeks, they're, they're a different kind of breed, and it seems like that had more of an effect than people might have um, thought. What do you make of the conversation we've been having over the last couple of weeks about what the impact of the debate was going to be and, of course, uh, Fetterman's presentation after having had the stroke in the last days of the primary? Yeah, well, Brianna, you're obviously absolutely right based off of those exit polls. And I think the Fetterman campaign was um, smart to take advantage of that early on in the campaign. You know, after John Fetterman had his stroke and we saw that the general election solidify between him and Oz after the Republican and Democratic primaries, the Fetterman campaign immediately pounced on uh, the residency question with Dr. Oz and continued to make it an issue over and over and over again, whether it was an ad, in an ad, in a meme, in a rally, they drilled it into voters' heads. And that's very important here. You know, it could have been something they glossed over, but the Fetterman campaign chose to make it a central part of their attack messaging against Oz, which obviously helped. You know, in terms of the debate, you know, there were a lot of questions as to how that would play. And there were a lot of criticism, even among Democrats that Fetterman uh, debated and there was a lot of worry about how that would impact the race. But the debate did end up taking place pretty late in the game, October 25th. So by that time, early voting had happened, meaning much of the Democratic base had probably already gotten out. But looking at those issues and seeing that abortion was so incredibly important to Pennsylvanians as an issue, it seems like the debate ultimately wasn't able to sway enough minds. I think uh, voters already had their minds decided on a lot of these issues. Maybe it turns some voters off uh, against Fetterman. Maybe it turns some voters off against Oz. But, you know, once again, I think this is a case of us in the media, um, because, you know, we host these events, we read very much into them, uh, making a bigger deal about the debate than it ultimately ended up being. Right. I mean, it is it. It's a close. It's a close race. It's it's uh, yeah. not a you know a landslide victory or anything for for Fetterman. But the expectation would be that the debate wouldn't have much of an effect. I, this one was notable because, in my view, the performance was because of his medical situation just so right. But know, this this wasn't the last time people saw him. I think this is the thing. I remember I, I mentioned this last week. Again, sorry, I've obviously been watching a lot of these Philly sports teams. But while watching the game and seeing all the advertisements that came through, I was reminded that this is the last pitch. This is the last, <laughs> pun intended, this is where a lot of people are going to see him last, not have that impression of the debate, but to see him in these more edited 
clips where he is speaking normally and is wearing his hoodie and seeing like the approachable guy that people know and love from the state. Mm. You know, we yeah. should bring up um, the the, uh, the the effort. Like Josh Shapiro, the successful you know Democratic gubernatorial candidate, w you know wanted uh, an opponent like Doug Mastriano. You know, in the same way I, I think spent some money uh, one of the, one of those campaign situations to get Republicans to pick that guy that went on in some of the races. Uh, that tactic. Looking pretty, looking pretty effective, no matter what you might make of it, given that some of these harder right candidates really came up short in a lot of races, um, true or not. Yeah, not just in Pennsylvania, but potentially in Arizona. Look, there was a lot of criticism among political observers and even Democrats of K Katie Hobbs' campaign for governor in Arizona and the fact that K her and Carrie Lake were running so tightly. But now it seems at this moment in time, and this could change because results are still coming in, uh, Katie Hobbs is leading. Carrie Lake and Carrie Lake is very much um, in the same mold in a way as a Doug Mastriano, except she was able to garner more support in Arizona. So the threat of someone like Carrie Lake to Democrats was much more real in a state like Arizona than it was in Pennsylvania. Another hard right candidate uh, or incumbent, I should say, who I'm very shocked about this morning that she's not doing as well as we expected was Lauren Boebert in mm. Colorado. Um, you know, she is very much uh, running very, very closely with her Democratic challenger. That is a solidly red district. So it is very surprising that she is very much playing defense this morning. Yeah, these some of these wild um, Trump-like characters, it's just not, it's not attractive to, uh, it's attractive for the Republican base. It's not attractive in these general elections. I mean, we're learning that uh, lesson over and over and over again. Uh, Julia, thank you so much for joining us this morning, for making time for us. We know you're quite busy. We'll see you again soon. Thank you. And more rising, of course, right after this. Midterm polls signal a possible red wave due to Democrats' poor ratings on the state of the economy and rising inflation. Pundits often claimed elect the election would be a referendum on the Biden presidency and thus a Republican landslide. But results are still slowly coming in this morning. It appears the grand old party is not performing as well as expected. Democrats overcame 76 percent of voters rating the economy negative, uh, according to an ABC exit poll. Support for abortion rights, negative views of Donald Trump, rejection of election denial, broad backing from young voters and surprising strength among independents. Uh, that all had important impact. So what changed? Joining us now to break all this down is advisor at De Decision Desk HQ, Scott Tranter. Welcome, Scott. Good morning. Yeah, good morning. So help us, you know, explain what's happening. It looks to me like, uh, you know, a lot of the polls had very close races, and these are close races. So I don't think, and I'm, I'm curious to get your take on this. Obviously, I, it doesn't seem to me like we're seeing massive polling error, although to the extent there is polling error, it's, it's, in the, it's in the positive for the Democrats. Democrats are doing a little bit better than the polls suggested, which is obviously not what we've seen in the last, uh, in the last election cycle. Uh, help, help break it all down for us. Yeah, no, I think, I think you're on to something. If we look at the last three election cycles, 2020, 2018, 2016, the polling error has been um, uh, in the favor of the Republicans. Um, there's still a lot of races to call and a lot of polls to uh, analyze. But from what we've seen so far, the polling error has seemed to undercount Democrats, specifically in Pennsylvania, 
potentially in Georgia, um, and we're waiting to see Arizona and Nevada play out. But when we look at the House races, there is a very real chance that Democrats are able to hold on to the House, which uh, 24 hours ago was about a 15 to 20 percent chance. Uh, how much of this is a kind of a Bradley effect, where people polled don't necessarily want to confess their true opinions, uh, specifically around the issue of abortion? Because we heard a lot of talk about how abortion just didn't rank for voters when it came to the economy and inflation and crime, that those were the priorities that were going to drive people to the polls. Obviously, we saw in Kansas that abortion had the ability to drive turnout. Are we not looking at this the right way? Is it Could it be the case that either voters didn't want to necessarily say that abortion was a priority or didn't really think of it as a priority, but it was a uh, necessary but in, you know not in, necessary but insufficient thing that drives them to the polls, right? That it was something that was going to get them to the polls even if it wasn't a stated priority because of how important it was as a foundational tool. How, how are you looking at the intersection between the pri poll pri polling priorities and the role abortion played last night? I, I'd be lying if you said if I said any definitive answers on that. That is one of the one of two leading theories on why um, some of the polling may have missed under 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 uh, basically undercounting, under catching how important abortion, abortion was. Um, the other theory is, is candidates matter, right? So there's there's quite a few Trump back candidates um, and, and those candidates did not do well despite being Republican and despite being in favorable um, generic Republican uh, a wave year. Um, you know, so between those two issues, there's going to be a lot of brand new, newly minted PhDs as they look at the exit polling and they mm -hmm. and the dust settles on this and try and figure out what uh, what the miss was here. Mm. Speaking of PhDs, I'm kind of curious to ask then about the role that you that student debt may or may not have played in this. I saw um, as prominent student debt group tweeting critically of Tim Ryan. He, of course, lost his race uh, and was a, an opponent of student debt cancellation, vocally so, at the same time that youth vote really helped push a lot of Democratic candidates over the edge who were successful last night. What role do you think uh, Biden's promises of student debt cancellation as yet fulfilled, uh, as yet unfulfilled rather, uh, had on last night's results? I think it's going to play out and let's see what it looks like in Arizona and Nevada, which has also a decent amount of of folks who are holding student debt. Um, Tim Ryan in Ohio um, made it close near the end. He is He's going to ultimately lose by several points. Um, and, and student debt certainly play, played an issue there in the in the 18 to 34 crowd, um, which we did see in the exit polling did, 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 did matter. Um, you know, well, let's see what it looks like in suburban Georgia and some of these more suburban college areas, um, how it plays out. But that combined with abortion, combined with polling misses uh, on the Democratic side, uh, you have a mix for not a red wave, a red ripple. I, I did see a lot of uh, kind of conservatives concluding that while J.D. Vance did win, uh, did beat Tim Ryan, the, the amount of money spent in that race to achieve that result, money that could have been spent, could have been spent on Masters, could have been spent on Laxel. We don't you know, quite know, obviously, what's going to happen in Nevada. Could have been spelled better used elsewhere if they didn't have to defend um, in Ohio. Uh, so there's a, a kind of, uh, you know, anger there, kind of, you know, the implication being that even though that candidate won uh, because he put the, the Republicans in the position of having to defend it or spend money there, spend resources there, it hurt them elsewhere. Are, are, you, are, do you, are you seeing that argument being, being made as well? Absolutely. And it's certainly logical. But I think this, if, uh, 
if the campaign strategists knew exactly how much to spend so they could get exactly the number of votes they needed and not one more, um, first of all, these guys would be buying lottery tickets, not necessarily yeah. advising campaigns. Um, but that that's easy because money's fungible. One thing I would point out is in 2020 and now in 2022, we've had record-setting fundraising across the board. And while money gets you to a certain level, at a certain point, it's diminishing returns. Once you got enough money, you got it. Um, after that, there are diminishing returns, and I think we saw that in Ohio. Um, I, I, I happen to think Blake Masters had enough money down the stretch. It wasn't a money problem. It's just going to be a message problem. Um, mm. And that's kind of what we're learning. Just because you have the most money doesn't necessarily mean you're, you're a guaranteed win. It's not like it was 20, 30 years ago. It also seems to have hurt some of APAC's candidates. I talked about this in a radar last week, but Summer Lee uh, was targeted by APAC in her primary, where they backed her primary opponent, and then they got into the race in the general election for the first time, putting money behind a Republican candidate who also was unsuccessful in their effort to beat uh, Summer Lee. Uh, I, I wonder, uh, I want to ask you though. How much, there was this last minute push we saw from Barack Obama on the campaign trail and some others who seemed to take the advice that was coming from the left flank of the party, Bernie Sanders and the like, to talk more about the economy and to talk about the Republican plan to address inflation, which has been, as it articulated, to cut Social Security and Medicare. Do you think people concerned about those kind of bedrock retirement programs um, had any effect on this race or was that kind of too little too late after the bed was, uh, bread was baked? Well, it's interesting you point that out, at least, you know, because you've got some of these candidates on, on, on the trail saying they're not going to cut Medicare, they're not going to cut Social Security. But then when you actually do the issue polling and ask the voters what they think and what they think may not be reality, but what they think, you know, is their reality at the moment, it's a mixed bag there. So I do think it does have an effect, especially if you're 50 or older, which tends to be the demographic that votes quite a bit more. Um, that message was pushed quite a bit down the stretch. But in states like Arizona, Florida, um, Nevada, um, there had already been a significant amount of vote already voted. So I think it's a mixed bad on, bag on where that where, where Social Security and Medicare um, uh, stood there. But, you know, it is not necessarily a clean win for the Republicans because they're going to tell you every day we're not going to cut it. But the voters don't necessarily believe that. Speaking of having already voted, uh, you know, we've discussed uh, the, the, the libertarian vote is a factor in Arizona and in Georgia. In Georgia, you know, likely to ma making it certainly more likely to head to a recount. And then in Arizona, the Libertarian Party candidate had dropped out and endorsed the Republican Blake Masters, which is something we covered on the show last week. However, he was still on the ballot despite doing that. And I see him getting, uh, here it looks like he's getting over 2% of the vote. So could you, you talk a little bit about, uh, you know, what's, uh, what, what's happened with third parties so far? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Third parties, the libertarian candidates, especially in, in places like Georgia, Arizona, Nevada, there's one in, in Florida, that one didn't necessarily matter. Um, they tend to pull in high single digits and they tend to end up getting one to two points when it's all said and done. Um, so, you know, they basically perform under where they poll, um, which usually doesn't have an impact. But when we're looking at Georgia, where Warnock is, you know, 20, 30,000 votes potentially away from avoiding a runoff, it could it could matter. Um, and especially in Arizona, where it's too close to say whether, you know, that candidate's going to matter or not, uh, that libertarian candidate, it's certainly a possibility and it's going to be talked about. I think that Georgia one's the most interesting. I was looking at that right before I came in here, and that's where I'm going to go look at right when I'm done. We're waiting for some votes out of Atlanta, and that will tell us whether or not there's enough for Warnock um, to get above 50 or not. I suspect there's probably not, um, and it's that libertarian candidate that's keeping uh, Walker in it. Mm. Well, Scott, thanks so much for joining us this morning. We appreciate it. Thank you.
More Rising right after this. While results from yesterday's midterms are still rolling in, it's already clear that the expected red wave was more like a little red splishy splash. <laughs> According to pollster John De La Volpe, voters under 30 might be the reason. While voters over the age of 45 favored the GOP by double digits, the 18 to 29 voter block favored Democrats by 28 points. Joining us now to weigh in on this is CEO and founding partner of Hit Strategies, Terrence Woodbury, and Newsweek contributor and business consultant, Denise Long. Welcome to you both. Good morning. All right, Terrence, this may not be super surprising, at least the fact that uh, younger voters tend to skew pretty overwhelmingly Democrat. But is there a unexpected turnout story here? And if so, to what do you attribute that? Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, th their support of Democrats is not surprising, but their turnout in this midterm has defied some, some, some precedent here. You know, we have been expecting that likely voter polls were underrepresenting Democratic performance because likely voters polls did not include the 24 million new voters that we new Democratic voters that we activated in 2018. And so the question here has always been, uh, will we be able to turn out that 2018 anti-Trump, anti-MAGA surge without putting Trump on the ballot and young people increase their share from 2018 to now by 2% and people of color increase their share by 1%. And so a, an electorate that is younger and more diverse than 2018 is an electorate that favors Democrats. Hmm. Yeah, uh, Denise, I wonder if we're seeing, we're, we're just going to see kind of permanently high turnout in general. Um, you know, perhaps the message that the most important election of our lifetime, yada, yada, yada. You know, I tend to roll my eyes at that a little bit because that's what they always say. But maybe it's sunk in. And now young voters um, who historically had to be really motivated to get to the polls or, you know, have something really to believe in, maybe they're just going to show up um, in record numbers just like the rest of us because it, it's sunk in for everyone that this really matters. Well, I think in, in many ways, this election, as others uh, immediately before it, demonstrates the ways that Republicans haven't actually made a solid case for their stance on the culture war. I think there are ways that with the younger generation, particularly, um, it's been ingrained that the right to an abortion is uh, a human right, a constitutional, nationally protected right um, is a human right. And that somehow this decision um, took away that right. I think there are ways that uh, my Republican Party talks about issues of race, uh, racism and black people in America in particular that um, alienates the younger generation when they've been steeped in, uh, certainly when you talk about folks who are in college, steeped in this idea that, uh, you know, uh, if any of us are left behind, all of us are left behind. So there are ways that my party needs to really up its game and up its ante when it comes to delivering on the culture and what they're going to do about the culture in the United States. Yeah, I think the abortion uh, point is a really good one, Denise. This is from an October teen Vogue national poll. Six out of 10 young voters surveyed plan to cast a ballot for a candidate who supports abortion rights. Majorities of Americans from 18 to 65 support the right to abortion, but 74% of people under 35, the highest percentage in the survey, do support that right. And we definitely saw that last night. Yeah, it, it certainly seems that way. Yes. 
You, you know, but Denise, I, I would I would argue that Republicans have made their position on the culture war crystal clear. They have made it very clear uh, through through their ads and their rhetoric and their embrace of white supremacy, their position on race and justice, their position on on women's access and, and, and uh, access to abortion. And what is what's important about young people, young voters, they millennials and Gen Z have emerged as the biggest voting bloc in America. But they're also the most diverse voting bloc in America. They lead with their identities. And as long as Republicans take these positions on identity politics, on things like abortion and race and, and crime and policing and voting rights and immigration, then they are alienating the growing marketplace of young voters and Democrats have an opportunity to really uh, achieve a political realignment by bringing... I would say that Republicans haven't made a good, sorry, I would say that Republicans haven't made a good enough presentation on the cost to a current Americans, whether you're a multi-generational white Americans, part of the white settler colonial class, or you're part of the 40 million of us who are descendants of U.S. slaves, they haven't made a good enough case on recognizing the ways that immigration, for example, that you mentioned, actually does have negative costs. And we've known this for generations from Barack Obama's civil rights uh, data uh, and on and on and on. So Republicans haven't made a good enough case. They haven't come forth offering the clarity that we need as a party to help Americans see. The other piece is the way that people with the decision from um, the justices about abortion, the way it was catastrophized in the sense that people can't get abortions. And there needs to be some balance, truly, to your point about what that decision looks like in real life. Uh, when we say that there isn't a constitutional, national constitutional right to an abortion in the way that we generally knew it, what does it mean in practice? And how do we address those issues rather than catastrophize it and make it more than it is? Well, last night in Florida, the first Gen Z member of Congress was elected. 25-year-old Maxwell Frost will fill the seat vacated by Congresswoman Val Demings, who challenged Senator Marco Rubio for his seat. Frost campaigned on a number of policies, including what he called reimagining justice through ending mass incarceration, demilitarizing the police, and abolishing the death penalty. I mean, some of that, you know, that's going to be popular among young people, but I, I mean, you know, abolishing the police, et cetera. Um, the one in Florida. Not- what do you mean at one in Florida? I mean, this guy won the seat. He won Val Deming's old seat. And it's worth a noting. A Democratic seat, yeah. Right. And, it, and it's a couple of other, it's worth noting a couple of other races that we haven't yet covered here today. Um, uh, there was a, uh, a, 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 a person who was known as a hardliner uh, a sheriff in Massachusetts who lost his seat. There was a um, Minnesota in Minnesota, which has been the, the root of so much of the conflict post-George Floyd. Um, pro-criminal justice reform candidates uh, won. Keith Ellison was able to hold on to his seat. So the, the, the Democrats have really been, I think, afraid of their shadow with respect to a lot of the fallout from the George Floyd protest. And Terrence, uh, I, I wonder what you make of this, because I think that a lot of the good advice, the reasonable advice that people were taking was to avoid those t- subjects, talk more about funding the police. Stacey Abrams certainly took that advice and talked about how she wanted to increase police pay. It didn't seem to have paid off for her. What do you think about the Democrats I mean, but, and whether or not they should follow the but lead of the young? Just to add to what you say, though, it was a mixed bag for criminal justice reform. You know, Ohio and Alabama both, both passed uh, bail initiatives that will make it um, harder to get bail for people. So there were, there were some wins and some losses, I think, in the criminal justice category. But go, go ahead. 
Absolutely. So we do believe that Democrats should take a more aggressive uh, and progressive position on policing, that there is a there is a path to winning the majority here. And more importantly, there's a path to mobilizing the base. There's these young voters who we've already acknowledged are the growing marketplace, but also are the most least likely voters. These were the same voters that showed up in the summer of 2020, that protested in every battleground state in every city, and they demanded, they demanded reform. But what's important is the progress that has been made, because these are also the same voters that don't believe our promises. They are more cynical towards the promises of politicians, but they will believe the progress that that Merrick Garland's Justice Department has banned no-knock warrants, banned chokeholds, and ended the federal government's relationship with private prisons. That he has prosecuted Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, and Ahmaud Arbery's murderers with federal hate crime uh, 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 indictments. And so there's progress being made but, the, but I do agree that Democrats have to be, become more clear about their progressive stance and that what they are suggesting is not defunding the police, but in fact funding the uh, services that prevent crimes of desperation as opposed to just uh, responding to them after they happen. Well, Denise, we'll give you the last word. What do you think about that? Yeah, so I don't I don't know that we win when we make it harder for people to get out of jail. I think there's balance. And I think the American people continue to lose when we have this polarizing rhetoric from the left and the right. The reality is that immigration does need to be addressed in this nation. While it does feel good to some to have loose or open borders, it does cost the American people in terms of political representation, employment. And there's even data that it shows for Black men in particular who don't have a high school uh, diploma that it costs them in terms of incarceration. Um, What we need is reasoned policies. And I would suggest that the Republicans who claim to be the adults in the room need to actually step up and be able to do what Terrence is talking about, what I've been talking about, is really name the realities of the ways that race and racism have an impact on lived experience in the United States of America. They need to reinvigorate their relationship with the descendants of slaves, the American freedmen of this country, so that the left can stop bastardizing our legacy to do things that ultimately undermine us as well as the American people. And until we get to that point of reasoned dialogue and reasoned policies, we're going to continue to lose and pick the lesser of two evils. Terrence and Denise, thank you so much for joining us for this discussion. Thank you for having me. Lovely. More Rising right after this. Many people thought this midterm election was going to be a red wave, but this morning we still don't have results for many key races. This morning, officials in Georgia say it's safe to say there will be a runoff between Herschel Walker and Raphael Warnock. The Nevada Senate race still remains a toss-up, and in Arizona, the race between Mark Kelly and Blake Masters is too close to call. And it's the same story in Wisconsin. Well, so far, Democrats scored a Senate win in Pennsylvania, where John Fetterman beat Dr. Oz, flipping that seat blue. But Republicans are celebrating Senate victories of J.D. Vance in Ohio and then Ted Budd in North Carolina. Here to discuss the balance of power in Congress is Washington correspondent for News Nation, Evan Lambert. Welcome, Evan. Thank you for having me. 
Yep, great to see you. So uh, what uh, races are you uh, looking at closely as we try to figure out where the balance of the Senate is headed? It's still obviously up in the air, although Republicans not having the exciting night that many expected or hoped that they would. Yeah, and I think Democrats really uh, took that over, I guess, with that flip in Pennsylvania. Uh, John Fetterman uh, claiming victory there and projected to win. Uh, we just understand from the Oz campaign, or the sorry, the Fetterman campaign, rather, uh, that Dr. Oz called to concede this morning. So it seems that's where the energy is with Democrats. But of course, you, know, you have these outstanding races that are just too close to call in those really tight swing races, Georgia, Arizona, Nevada. And those are the ones that everybody is watching when it comes to the balance of power. Now, before Election Day, you know, obviously had 50-50 Democrats with that slight majority with the tie-breaking vote of Vice President Kamala Harris. Uh, so Democrats have to hold on to 50 seats and Republicans had to gain one to get that majority. And it really comes down to those races that are just separated by thousands of votes, tens of thousands of votes we're talking about. We've been talking about the Senate a lot today, but it's also unexpected what's going on in the House. Obviously, uh, just historically, it's mm -hmm. expected that in an election year when uh, the party of the president is going to lose tons of seats, kind of irrespective of who the president of the United States is or how popular they are. Obviously, Barack Obama oversaw a horrific for Democrats' uh, red wave in 2010. And Biden is actually doing better than his predecessors here. Uh, can you speak to that a little bit and what you might attribute that to? Yeah, I mean, I think obviously in the last few weeks, especially, but really months, we have heard Republicans say that this was going to be a red wave. And we've seen that, that really has not come to fruition. Uh, obviously, you have the historic uh, political uh, wins that favor uh, the the party that is out of control uh, in this midterm uh, when there's a Democratic president or uh, when a president's party has full control of you know, the government uh, with the executive and the uh, Congress. Uh, but, you know, really that hasn't come totally to fruition. Uh, and I think, you know, past presidents, uh, you mentioned Barack Obama has called it, you know, what happened there, a shellacking. Uh, I, I don't think that really anyone can describe what happened last night, at least right now, uh, when you still have uh, these races uh, that are down to the wire, quite that. Uh, it looks like our partners here at News Nation with Decision Desk uh, were projecting something around uh, a, a pickup between 15 and 30. So uh, I guess Republicans would like to see that number go even higher, 30, 40. Uh, and it, it just seems like we're not going to see that with Democrat especially incumbents that held on to their seats uh, comes to mind is uh, Abigail Spanberger uh, in Northern Virginia. That was a really important race and one that Republicans thought they could uh, make waves with and they just didn't. Mm. Yeah, we've got, uh, you know, we've been talking a lot about political outcomes. Obviously, we should, you know, discuss that we're looking, as expected, uh, probably at divided government with, uh, you know, Republicans maybe taking by a, a much smaller margin than expected, but still looking like taking the House. Um, you know, what does that mean is, is headed to Washington or out of Washington, rather, in terms of the policy outlook? Are we in for that uh, kind of partisan gridlock that uh, you know, has become familiar for every time we get outside of the first, you know, two years of, of a president's administration when, when the other party comes back into play? 
Yeah, I think for most people, especially uh, outsiders, uh, Washington is synonymous with gridlock. And it seems like that's what we're uh, set up for with uh, a divided uh, government here. And uh, if if we think that Democrats are going to hold on to the Senate and Republicans will take the House, then certainly uh, not much uh, is going to get done with President Biden's agenda for the remainder of these two years, uh, especially when we know that the Republicans have been outspoken uh, if they have a majority with holding things up with investigations. You know, they've talked about investigating Hunter Biden. They've talked about investigating the uh, DOJ and FBI. Uh, there are uh, some people, I guess, on the more extreme end of the Republican Party that uh, want to see uh, an impeachment of several officials all the way up to uh, President Joe Biden. So uh, it just depends on, I guess, how much traction that gets uh, and, and likely to get less with uh, such a slim majority that is now looking like it's going to come into shape as opposed to this windfall. Yeah, I saw some conservative commentators opining that Kevin McCarthy is in trouble. Uh, minority leader was expected to deliver uh, bigger gains this time around. Have you heard any of that scuttlebutt? I know that that's the talk. Uh, people obviously expected him to have a better play at Speaker of the House, uh, the wider the majority ends up being in the House uh, if, if that comes to fruition, which it looks like it might. Uh, so it's possible that he could be in trouble or forced by uh, some of the uh, more conservative parts of the Republican Party uh, to go a certain way. Uh, but I think from what I've seen, a lot of people are saying that if he does have you know, relatively safe majority, then you know, they believe he will end up being Speaker of the House. Remains to be seen. And Senate side, obviously, there's been a lot of anti-Mitch McConnell talk from Trump world. Uh, you know, Trump has this feud with Mitch McConnell, but Mitch McConnell, who said candidate quality, ma candidate quality matters and had tried to set expectations uh, lower because he was concerned that some of these kind of Trump pick candidates were, uh, were going to be losers. That looks like a good prediction, and I can't imagine now he'll be facing, um, maybe he was never going to face any challenge, but I heard some talk that maybe with this you know, incoming wave of more Trump loyal Republican senators. You could have uh, Rick Scott make a play or something like that. That seems very unlikely to me now. Uh, what's your read of the situation? Yeah, so I mean, obviously, people have been talking about kind of that internal battle between uh, Rick Scott, who's heading up the campaign arm of the Republican Party, uh, and Mitch McConnell. And clearly, uh, I think. Mitch McConnell is probably taking a bit of a victory lap, especially when it comes to his prediction that you know, candidate quality was really going to be something that plagued the Republican Party, especially in these tight Senate races. Uh, and so, you know, if, if anybody's in a better situation, it seems to be Mitch McConnell uh, between the two of them. Uh, and he kind of gets to say, I told you so. Evan Lambert, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. We'll have more rising for you. Stick around. People, just put that phone down, girl. God bless you. It's my son. <laughs> Who, by the way, wanted to make sure that his absentee ballot was, was uh, that I did that. And I had trouble actually voting for him absentee ballot today. And that made me very concerned. It was the first well, time. Uh, I was told to put it in an orange bag on the floor. And the orange bag mm. looked to me like a Target bag or something. And I said, isn't there a formal election box that says absentee ballots or something like that? And then she said, let me check. And then found it. Mm -hmm. Wow. So that concerned me. Well, people just put that. Did Sonny Hostage just 
confess to election fraud. Well, look, that's what a lot of conservatives are saying online. Dinesh D'Souza tweeted uh, last night that Sunny Hostin basically admits to being guilty of voter fraud. Her son was away, so she voted his ballot. It doesn't matter what his intention was. <coughs> People cannot vote on behalf of others. Presumably, she also forged his signature. She should be arrested and prosecuted. Now, listening to that back, it's not clear to me that she actually no. forged his signature at all. It seems like he no. might have filled out his ballot and left it for her to drop off at the mailbox, which I'm not sure that that is actually Maybe legal. Maybe he's just, you know, a millennial or a Gen Z or like myself who doesn't know how to mail something. Because when was the last, <laughs> what do you do? You put a stamp on it? What do you, I don't know Okay. How it works. I mean, that's completely possible yeah. that I don't know how to use a rotary phone, as I've discovered from many a TikTok. Yeah. But it, it is interesting to see the kind of voter fraud accusations arise. We see the situation that's happening um, with the ballot boxes in Arizona right now, with all kinds of accusations being uh, made about um, what it means that Hobbs is the one that oversees the efficacy of the ballots in Maricopa County, um, where the delay is emerging. And of course, we've seen on the flip side, Republicans making a lot of political hay out of the idea of voter fraud, um, advancing policies to crack down on voter fraud. That has led, frankly, to people being wrongly arrested and hauled off to jail for accusations of something that happens extremely Yeah, I don't know how you can watch any of those videos of, of police showing up to people and saying you weren't supposed to vote and now you have to come to the state. It just seems like a waste of everybody's time. So in Florida, obviously, we saw there really was a red wave, but that's also a place where we've seen uh, Republicans very successfully kind of weaponize fear of voter fraud to crack down on people and arrest them for voter fraud, even if they have not actually committed a crime, as we see here. Yeah, these videos of uh, the police coming to, to people and saying you weren't supposed to vote and that you have to go down to the station are really, I don't see how anyone could watch those and say like that this is a constructive use of the police's time. I mean, if we're concerned about crime, this is really how we want to spend police resources and police hours. I, I don't, I can't imagine anyone feels that way, so. Yeah, I mean, look, I understand, we've also seen, frankly, a lot of accusations coming from Democrats about voter fraud, right. um, voter record, suppression. Record turnout. Record turnout. Yes. But. And that's part of the Stacey Abrams story, as we've talked about, that she's basically built herself a house constructed on a <laughs> foundation that she was improperly denied uh, the election because of voter suppression. And, I, you know, mm -hmm. things happen, just like some there's some instances of voter fraud that, of course, happen. But all in all, that is not what you can attribute to her consecutive losses, especially when you see Raphael Warnock doing such so much better than she is in the state. Um, so I don't know. Uh, there's been a, in fact, Matt Orfala uh, did a super cut at some point of all of the Democrats since 2016 making accusations that elections were stolen. And I do wonder how we're going to get out of this place. Yeah. Uh, what, how we're going to get out of this place rhetorically where everyone in the country is so distrustful of the system and that the results can come down fairly that these arguments have a lot of traction. Yeah, the, the really uh, appalling statement by many Republican figures about uh, Donald Trump actually winning the 2020 election, which he didn't, have, uh, have been so, are, are so kind of shiny. They're the headlines, so they attract attention. But many Democrats have, have in, in a more kind of subtle way, in some cases, and not so subtle ways, in other cases, have really tried to attribute it to, uh, to misinformation, to this you know, Russian-based foreign influence campaign. I mean, that was, that was the feel-better explanation. Why did we lose that Hillary people came up with, and then the mainstream media completely embraced, 
totally, uh, yes, it's not that she failed. It's not that she was an unpopular candidate who ran a terrible campaign, did not visit, did not campaign in Michigan and Pennsylvania. The, the states that decided the race, she wasn't there. But instead of just accepting responsibility for terrible campaign decisions, they decided that Russian bots on Facebook that were seen by like some people in California or something right. is the reason that older white working class voters who had voted maybe for Bernie in a primary decided to vote for Donald Trump because Russian Facebook groups had targeted them, which is the most insulting and stupid idea. Like these, these are people who listen to talk radio and cable news that yeah. were bombarded yeah. with messaging from the campaigns themselves. Yeah. To think that was not effective, but somehow Russia had tapped into their hippocampus is just so <laughs> diluted. But that narrative has just take, has taken hold. And now we're, now they don't say that part specifically. They just say it's misinformation. But right, that's so, what they mean. That's the root of that accusation. So there, there is a big difference between Donald Trump Rudy Giuliani, these people trying to call up uh, electors and get election results not certified, which is a thing that happened. And the rhetoric that I think you can rightly say can't, comes from both sides of the aisle about, I should have won this election, this election was yeah. stolen, right? And I'm not saying that any of it is good. I do think there's a meaningful difference of trying to literally keep certified election results from being certified and the kind of rhetorical flourishes that are frankly very common in politics, mm -hmm. sour grapes and the like. Um, but I think your point about uh, Hillary Clinton and Democrats never really taking accountability for what happened in 2016 is a good one. And in a recent Intercept article, actually, um, uh, uh, George Cheedy described Stacey Abrams as the Hillary Clinton of 2022. And I don't think he's necessarily wrong about nope. that. No, I think that's a really good way to put it. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. I think she, this has got to be time for her to exit the political arena, right? This is... Hillary Clinton or Stacey Abrams? Both. I don't think either. <laughs> That's the problem. Like, like we were talking about in an earlier segment, if the Democrats are still wedded to this idea that they can create stars and run stars without having to be really as attendant to what's going on in various communities, the way I think John Fetterman was and why he was able to weather the storm of his stroke in a bad deba debate performance is because the people there knew He did something right. It is truly impressive, it. frankly astonishing to me that he could still win after um, the appearance uh, that he it, it Well, is, look, it, it that's the beauty of having a longer but, tail on your relationship in a community. And we had guests earlier this week talking about the Latino vote saying something similar. Not seeming like someone who shows up last minute and, you know, says mm -hmm. You know, we're the good guys. Uh, is 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 it really works? Having these people embedded in the community that folks trust for the longer haul works. And you know, I hope the Democratic Party realizes that. If not, we are going to see another Stacey Abrams run, and she might be the most successful Democratic politician in history who's never actually won a race. Yeah, the anti-Fetterman who has never lost, much like the Philadelphia Eagles. Fair enough. <laughs> More rising right after this. Stay with us. Well, Lauren Boebert, a kind of MAGA firebrand Republican congresswoman from Colorado, is currently in a very, very tight race. And uh, it looks like it's quite possible she could lose there, which would be unexpected. Um, she's a, a kind of well-known uh, in a conservative media, a lot of, again, fiery appearances. Um, Very pro-Trump, pictured yes. frequently uh, holding AK-47s, famously said that she is not a big fan of the separation between church and state. Many deleted tweets, um, has very much been an advocate of using uh, trans rights, pronouns, et cetera, as a 
a wedge issue. Uh, seems not to have been working out for her in the state of Colorado. Apparently, Jen Psaki tweeted that her father lives in her district and warned her uh, a month ago that Lauren Boebert was at risk, and Jen Psaki didn't believe it, but here we are today. Despite predictions, um, Lauren Boebert's most recent tweet was that a red wave has begun, as she hasn't tweeted since then, and it definitely seems like those expectations have not come to pass, not only for the Republican Party at large, but for the candidate herself. Robbie, you've been talking a lot about candidate choice and how these Trump candidates just can't make it. She was one of the, not one of the ones that we really had our eye on uh, this whole election season, but do you feel validated? Yeah, I mean, I, I want to wait till the rest of the results come in, but uh, I, I think the, the you know, let's go back to the idea that, um, it's something we've talked about on the show, that uh, voters wanted a return to normalcy mm. in some ways. Um, in some sense, that's what they thought they were voting for, I think, when they voted for Joe, when Joe Biden beat mm -hmm. Donald Trump. Donald Trump is a carnival show. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and they wanted to get back to normal. And maybe they're telling us that again, because we're seeing kind of these more extreme personalities in the, in the MAGA side, um, or, or just personalities in general. Dr. Oz isn't really an extreme MAGA person, although he did enjoy Donald Trump's um, support, which did help him get the nomination, but is a personality, is a TV yeah. personality. No history in politics, not an average Joe who, I mean, doesn't even, didn't even live in the state. Right. Um, whereas you have, I mean, the, the, the successful, if we're pointing to successful figures in the Republican coalition lately, I would say Brian Kemp, mm -hmm. Glenn Young, and Ron DeSantis as well, mm -hmm. uh, but, uh, but, but people who don't have the kind of eccentricity, who are not mm -hmm. just kind of um, living in right-wing media and saying the most extreme things and, 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 and absolutely all about Trump and about 2020, those people, the people who, who have done all of those things, including it looks like possibly Boebert, are facing a lot of challenges. And I, I think that's because, I'll say, I, I probably sound like a broken record at this point, but it, 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 is, it emerges yeah. that what the hardcore element of the Republican Party wants is not is not what your more centrist, moderate Republicans, independents, and and some probably Democrats who who could vote for Republicans in certain. I mean, there's a long history in blue states. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, in Massachusetts of of blue voters, uh, uh, Maine, mm -hmm. blue voters, especially in the Northwest, but elsewhere, choosing occasionally Republican governors mm -hmm. when when they they like that that person has a moderate cadence and personality and is inoffensive and it maybe is a corrective to some you know local policies that have gone too far left or something or too pro progressive or whatever they can win they i mean look at susan collins yeah my best over friend works for the republican governor in massachusetts and yeah. it's, a, it's a mixed bag in terms of the politics of the people who work in that office because they are moderate and reasonable and he's well liked in the state yeah yeah so we like we said the race hasn't been finally called but here's some images uh from the election party from earlier in the night versus later in the night that certainly suggest the direction things are heading. You see um, some crestfallen uh, voters there yeah. on the right as compared to the excitement that existed earlier. And to your point uh, earlier about the, the tenor of the language that we have come to expect from Lauren Berbert, Boebert, <laughs> her second to last tweet was, they called you cockroaches. They called you cult members. They called you extremists. They called you terrorists. Today, we call them losers. Hashtag red wave. 
we'll see if this actually right. is that that kind of rhetoric kind of coming back to bite her, or if there are a lot of people out there who are still very motivated by what they feel like are unfair attacks yeah. from liberals who characterize all of them as Lauren Boberts, even though yeah. she's a one in a million. And I don't, don't want to come across as like too squishy. Like I, I would prefer uh, on COVID policies. I support what are generally tagged now as like quite conservative policies. Uh, probably on some air, other areas, I would feel differently. But the the rhetoric, the rhetoric. can be that's it's the performance, it's the theatricality that is hurting these Republican candidates. The the how, remember the House GOP tweet. I, maybe we have that too. Tweeting Elon Musk, uh, Elon, Elon Kanye Trump. Like these are the figures who we're going to turn to. Elon is by far the most respectable of those three. <laughs> uh, you know, Kanye Trump. Th these are, yeah. are are these winning people? To, the, to the, that's what. That's what Republican um, uh, sort of uh, party operatives, comms people think is the is the winning uh, personality mix to win over swing voters, people in the middle. I don't think that has a very good track record at this point. Yeah, there's there's a lot of um, critique of Democrats. We saw this from Candace Owens in a segment yesterday uh, for over-investing in celebrity. And then you see a tweet like that and you kind of got to wonder where the GOP's head is, is or at yeah. least the GOP Twitter yeah. runner. Yeah. And, and, right, and Democrats, you know, for since the beginning of time, all the you know, annoying videos where you know, a bunch of celebrities say whatever. I believe. Katie, I believe. Pat, I, Katy Perry dancing with Hillary Clinton and the like. Yeah, yeah it, for sure. Yeah, which, and that doesn't help anyone either, but Republicans are supposed to recognize that and not fall for the yeah. exact same thing. Not, not back the uh, open anti Semite <laughs> weeks before the midterms, maybe, is, is not the right way to go, but. Uh, we will let you know what ends up happening in the Lauren Boebert race and, and have so more rising others. for you and so many and so many others. Stick around. While I may not have crossed the finish line, that does not mean we will ever stop running for a better Georgia. We will never stop running for the truth that we know to be true, for the people we know need to see it, for the ones who don't know they deserve to stand, let alone run. That was Stacey Abrams conceding last night after suffering a second loss to Republican Governor Brian Kemp. Abrams first ran against him back in 2018 on a similar platform aiming to curb voter suppression, expanding access to health care, protecting abortion rights and Internet access. Abrams narrowly lost her bid for the governor's mansion by eight percentage points, not so narrowly. Yeah. In Texas, Democratic challenger Beto O'Rourke also made an unsuccessful attempt to unseat the governor. He lost to Republican Greg Abbott by nearly 12 percentage points. Here's a little bit from his concession speech. Without fail, the unconditional love and support and the push that you give me day in and day out kept me going throughout this. So, Mom, I love you so much. Who knows what's next for, for any of us, right? Um, but but uh, I, I just cannot thank you enough. O'Rourke made a go, we remember, in 2018 for Senator Ted Cruz's seat, but did not win there either. Abrams and O'Rourke both ran on progressive platforms, but did not bring home victory uh, twice. They're the Vanity Fair candidates. So what do you think, Abrams, O'Rourke, 2024? Yeah, I mean, you know me, I'm going to push back against the word progressive being applied here. I know it has, this is a little bit of nitpicking, but a lot of folks were critical sure. of Abrams kind of walking back. I think her gen genuine progressive bona fides from her kind of college and grad school years. She was once, in her first in her first cycle, remember, she got in trouble for a picture that emerged of her like burning an American flag on, on campus. She has completely transformed from that person. So you're like, oh, how I long for the 
old can they say C.C. Abrams? Whatever you want to say about that, that was the kind of person who was not going to back down from, I think, authentic statements in support of the defund movement, in support of the protest, the George Floyd protest, the way that she did over the course of this most recent race. And frankly, there are some key differences between how she run, ran this time and how she ran even in 2018, when she had a much more broad populist message and did a good job connecting with a lot of rural Georgia voters who were not black. Yeah. Now she, I think, has overinvested in not just quote unquote progressive issues, but the specific issue of voter suppression, which despite, as we covered on the show, raising millions of dollars, her, her PAC Fair Fight drummed up more than $110 million over the past four years with very little show for it. Brittany Gibson was on the show, I believe, last week talking about how um, $9.4 million went to legal fees yeah. for cases that were yeah. not successful to a law firm that was uh, uh, headed by her close friend and gubernatorial um, campaign chair, which seems untoward in many people's eyes. Yeah. All of that was hinged, like so much of this money and effort was hinged on this idea of voter suppression. And we see historic turnout over and over again in the state. And I think it's just not gelling for voters. And Abram wants you to believe that talking about things like that is an example of misinformation targeting mm. uh, her key constituency, mm. black male voters. She said she ex- has explicitly thrown them under the bus. She said they were targeted with misinformation. Keisha Lance Bottoms backed up yep. that uh, talking point when she was interviewed. Um, I saw um, there was a speaker at Howard University um, the other day. Mm. Uh, author and activist who also said Dis- the demon of disinformation mm-hmm. is uh, is affecting black male voters. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and when you say misinformation, what you're what you're what you're hinting at is some kind of nefarious Russian-backed plot. You're, you're mm-hmm. going back to 20. That's what that's. Let's read between the lines. Mm-hmm. You're saying Russian social media forces are trying to convince uh, black voters or black male voters that the Democrats don't do enough for them and they should just stay home, which is a a message that is totally fair to make. Not actually nefarious, not also, also not changing the results of elections in 2016 yeah. or anywhere else. But that's the excuse making that Stacey Abrams uh, uh, clings to. And also o- O'Rourke, you know, this is someone who d- did well but did not win against Ted Cruz, then thought he could run for president. Didn't succeed at that, and now he's not succeeded at that. These these are two people. I, I put them together because I, I think they're in the in the same bucket of people who were minted to stardom and yes. celebrity status by the mainstream media, yes. or progressive media, not left but progressive. Yeah, I, you know, I yeah, tried yeah. to right. draw a little bit of a distinction there. Um, we're celebrated. We said these are our people, even though they have no. A very little proven track record of winning. Yeah, I mean, Ryan Zitgraf wrote a really uh, compelling case here in Compact, an article uh, published earlier this week called A Democratic Star Feels Upward that really describes how the Democratic Party is trying to uh, run on the strategy of minting national stars and hoping they perform well, trying to, to to capture the Obama magic in a way that was frankly not how Obama came on the scene, and I think which reads as really inorganic. So you're watching people like Pete Buttigieg do these strained Obama impressions, people like Beto O'Rourke doing these strained Obama impressions. I saw a local candidate here in D.C. on posters who seemed to be doing a Beto O'Rourke impression of Barack Obama, and it's just getting out of control. And at some point, the Democratic Party has to realize this strategy is not working. People don't seem to be wanting to vote for a celebrity. If you look at the success of someone like um, John Fetterman, 
I hope that proves the value of being integrated into a community, of having organic name recognition that comes from running locally as opposed to being kind of dropped down from the CNN pundit land. Um, even Carrie Lake, to the extent that she is modeled in this way, is not doing as well as some people had suggested. And I, I don't know how long it's going to take, how many of these kind of candidates it's going to take for the Democratic Party learns its lesson. Genuine, uh, genuine character, authenticity. It, it matters to voters on both sides. And some of the, it's the media, for, for Democrats, they have a problem with you know, elite media trying to say, oh, these are the people everybody should be enthusiastic about, even though voters maybe re reject those people. On the Republican side, it's more of a Trump selection process that makes a subset of Republicans happy and no one else happy. But both parties are grappling with this, that there's a, there's a people like certain people. Yes. <laughs> it's hard to put your finger on exactly what it is. If you talk to real voters, they'll say, oh yeah, I like him or I like her. I don't like him. He's a, he's a phony. He's sleazy or something. And, and, and those of us who obsess over politics and over you know, various things, we, we, we can miss the, the, it's the character of these people. Who you identify yes. with matters in a way that, um, that pundits can gloss over. And, and look at the gap between Stacey Abrams' performance, where she has clearly lost, and the Raphael Warnock performance, where it's yeah. certain to go to a runoff at this point, yeah. um, in the same state. There's been a lot of talk about black men, but it seems to be that black men did choose to vote for um, uh, Raphael Warnock here. Now, is that misogyny, misogynoir? I don't know. I'm sure the takes will be coming yeah. down the pike. Yeah. As, as the words are coming out of my mouth, someone's furiously writing a, a, you know, a, a Jezebel article up about this. But at the end of the day, you know, castigating those kind of voters doesn't get them to the polls. You have to figure out what appeals to them. And I think kind of preemptively blaming any kind mm -hmm. of voter block in that way isn't going to get you the results that you want. Mm. Um, one other thing I wanted to mention, and now seems as good a time as any to mention it, um, there is no way Joe Biden is not running for re-election. Yeah. Joe Biden is running for re-election. Yeah. Kamala Harris is running for re-election as his VP. That will be the ticket. If there was any, I, I think it was always going to be that way, but well, do you think there's no, oh, no one should, look at, look at that. They just staved off. Um, the, the defeat that everyone expected. Um, it, I don't know how they did it. We're still going to be discussing it and trying to figure it out. But yeah, this is going to this is going to quiet. I mean, if they're smart, this should quiet any discussion of trying to find an alternative to Biden in 2024. Biden, Biden Trump, the 2024 no matchup that nobody asked for. <laughs> oh, tomorrow on Rising, Executive Vice President of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft will join us to break down, uh, Trita Parsi will join us to break down what the election results mean for U.S. involvement in the Ukraine-Russia conflict. Obviously, we want to get into more. This was a day for politics, but we'll certainly get into more of the policy ramifications for divided government or some of the new uh, faces we'll be seeing in Congress. We'll also speak with managing editor of the Texas Tribune, the managing editor of the Texas Tribune about key races in Texas and the potential implications as we look ahead to 2024. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who prefer to listen while on the go, we are available anywhere you listen to podcasts. Mm. Well, this has been fun. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Uh, hopefully we'll know more. Some of these races still to be decided. So stay tuned for more Rising uh, tomorrow and later, etc. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Sure.